Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 10, verses 11 to 18. You may be seated now for the sermon, and as always, I encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews as we consider the passage together and to follow along as we go uh, through this together. As you're turning there, let me say again, welcome to those of you who are not regularly with us, but are either visiting uh, or are here to participate or observe uh, the special occasion in our service later this morning. In particular, we welcome you, Bishop Charlie. We're glad you could be with us. We look forward to you welcoming our brother Glenn into Anik as you license him to serve with us at Christ the King. Let me also welcome others who may be with us for that occasion. Bishop Stephen Andrews, the principal of Wycliffe College, has joined us. Others may be here as well. You encourage us by your presence here, and I hope you will also be encouraged for having been with us this morning. We have spent many, many weeks, many months actually, in the book of Hebrews at Christ the King. This morning, we've reached the end of the central exposition of this written sermon. But whether you this morning have been with us throughout our long study or not, or if you will continue with the rest of our study or not, I trust that the power of these concluding verses in Hebrews chapter 10 that we now take up will make a deep impression. I think the pastor writing Hebrews meant for them to do so. Even though we could look back and find in Hebrews almost every part of what is in these verses this morning taught in earlier passages, I do not think Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 18 is merely here to be a summary or a recapitulation of what the pastor has said already. Rather, I think these verses are a conclusion designed to bring the impact of all that has been said in this sermon home to its hearers. In other words, I think this is what the pastor would leave his original hearers and us today, what he would leave us with at the end of his core section of instruction. This is it. This is the high water mark of the pastor's teaching. Henceforth, beginning next week in verses 19 to 25, though some instruction and exposition will continue in the rest of Hebrews, the book on the whole turns primarily towards exhortation. For most of the rest of Hebrews, the pastor will urge his hearers to faith and to faithfulness. Just look at what's coming, if you would, down the page in chapter 10. Let us draw near, verse 22 says. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Starting next week, we've got to be ready to run, brothers and sisters. Why? Well, because you have need of endurance, the pastor is saying in chapter 10, verse 36. 
You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We'll talk much more in the weeks to come about what that endurance entails, but do you know what the key to the whole thing is? Do you know what it is that will determine whether or not we do endure? Whether or not we finish the race set before us? Whether or not we actually come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, as the pastor describes it in chapter 12? The key will be whether or not, as we run, we are looking to Jesus, dear friends. That's what the pastor says. And I know some of you already know that I have this tendency to give away lots of the big stuff in advance when I preach through books. I can't seem to help myself. But because it connects to, directly to our passage this morning, and because you've read these famous texts before anyway, if you would, turn over there to Hebrews chapter 12 for a moment to see this. When we finally manage to work our way through all the examples of faith that are there in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm still in the process of deciding just how deep we'll dive in that chapter, but when we do come up on the other side of it, and that great cloud of witnesses has then surrounded us, what does the pastor say we are to do? Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, let us also lay aside every weight, the pastor writes, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? <laughs> What's the key to running that race with endurance? It's there in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There in the end of verse 2 of chapter 12, we find what the pastor thinks are the two things we have to understand about Jesus if the Jesus we're actually looking at is the Jesus we need to be looking at as we run this race. Two things we have to keep clear in our mind's eye about Jesus Christ. They are his sacrifice and his session. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross is, of course, the reference to Christ's sacrifice. That he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God now is the reference to his session. We must have both of those things in view as we run the race. And I think the pastor can drop that in there in Hebrews chapter 12 as his summary of who Jesus is for us in part because of our text this morning, because of Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 18, which is itself of course so powerful because of the way it concludes the primary lengthy exposition of the entire book. You see those same two themes from chapter 12, verse 2, here in the main point of our passage, which is in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 10. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. The pastor writes, 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. What I think the pastor wants us, wanted his original hearers, wants us to see here at the end of the main section of Hebrews is that the exalted son as Jesus, our great priest, is now seated at God's right hand because his sacrifice has finally and fully and forever accomplished all that the Father willed. That's what we need to have in view, I think, as we run this race of faithfulness set before us. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Hebrews, or even if you've ever just read the book of Hebrews, you cannot have missed that the session and the sacrifice of Christ are the two prominent themes that run throughout the book. It's no wonder they appear together here in our text this morning. And I know that the word session isn't in our passage, but I use it partly because it works so well with sacrifice. But I use that word because it describes perfectly what the pastor says here about our exalted Lord. Session is a word derived from the Latin sessio which simply means the act of sitting. Court is in session when a judge or a jury is sitting to deliberate or to rule. Parliament is in session when its members are at their seats, well, at least virtually these days, to debate and to approve legislation. From the beginning of Hebrews, it has been the pastor's goal to fix his hearer's gaze on the session of the Son as Jesus. The exalted Son seated at God's right hand, the eternal Son, as we saw last week, who came into the world to do his Father's will. Those of you who have been with us will know that the pastor is clearly alluding in verses 12 and 13 of our text to Psalm 110, verse 1, the most frequently quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You may know Jesus claimed those words were about him. The pastor has, in fact, already alluded to or quoted from that particular verse of Psalm 110 three other times in this sermon. The first two references were in the very first chapter. So if you want to, turn back to where this all began in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. At the start of the opening chapter of Hebrews that has as its main theme, if you recall, the superiority of the Son to angels, it was the fact that the Son is now seated that was in focus. Chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then here comes the first allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. From the beginning, the pastor is signaling this is what will be in focus in Hebrews. Its book ended within chapter 1, when near the end of chapter 1, we find the second reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Perhaps you remember the final point the pastor makes in the presentation of the Son in that opening chapter. The thing that above all else demonstrates the Son's superiority, it is his session. Chapter 1, verse 13. The pastor concludes, And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There, the pastor quotes explicitly from Psalm 110, verse 1, to make clear that the session of the Son he had alluded to in the opening verses had been spoken of explicitly in the Old Testament. It was the Son who would be invited to sit at the right hand of the Father in fulfillment of Psalm 110. But why? Why does God extend that invitation to sit at his right hand to his son. Well, that is to carry us through the whole book of Hebrews, dear friends. We move towards the answer to that question, why, in the third reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, found in Hebrews, which is all the way over in chapter 8, verse 1. There may be one or two other allusions to it, but as far as clear explicitly, It's referenced in chapter 8, verse 1, if you want to turn over there now. From the two references that were in chapter 1, we know that the Son was invited to sit, invited to sit at God's right hand. Hebrews 8, verse 1 brings us towards the second main theme, the theme of sacrifice. Summarizing his argument that had begun in chapter 5, the pastor says in chapter 8, verse 1, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Within the context of all of Hebrews, we understand that drawing from a careful reading of Psalm 110 itself, the pastor's profound insight is that the same exalted son who was invited, we read about in chapter 1, invited to sit at the father's right hand is also our great high priest according to the scriptures. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, you know we've spent months in this book, our attention has been drawn to the fact 
that the one who is invited in Psalm 110 verse 1 to sit at God's right hand is, according to verse 4 of that same psalm, a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Psalm 110 verse 4 says in the famous oath language the pastor himself picks up on, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 8 verse 1, the third reference to Psalm 110 verse 1, the son's enthronement shows that it is his priestly ministry that is conducted not in an earthly sanctuary among the shadows or the copies of the heavenly realities, but in the true tent itself, in the heavenly sanctuary. All of which brings us then to the fourth reference to Psalm 110 verse 1 in Hebrews, which is, of course, the reference found in our passage this morning. It almost feels as though the pastor has been saving this one, saving the exact point he makes here, waiting until the end to draw together the themes of his teaching using Psalm 110 verse 1 itself. It isn't until Hebrews 10 verse 11 in our text this morning that we see how, explicitly how the session, the sitting of Jesus Christ as our high priest relates explicitly to his sacrifice his priestly offering, the offering of himself on the cross, the pastor makes for his hearers now one final contrast between the old priests and the new. How many of these we've considered in recent weeks? There's one more. According to chapter 10, verse 11, the ineffectiveness of the old is exposed by the old covenant priests perpetually standing. Now, standing was the required posture of priests who served in the Old Covenant. We see that in texts such as Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, which says the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to stand before the Lord, to minister to him and to bless his name. It was a position of honor. Again, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 7, the Levites are described as those who stand to minister before the Lord. Within the Old Testament and the Old Covenant itself, there was nothing unusual and certainly nothing wrong about this fact. To stand before God was an expression used to describe the honor of serving as a priest. But as the pastor has shown us so clearly week after week, all of that is but the copy, the shadow of the true heavenly reality. Now, in light of the superior sacrifice that has been explicitly in focus in the last few weeks, the pastor looks at it another way. Considering Christ's session as our high priest, the pastor understands that a perpetually standing priest was an ineffective priest. In other words, Christ's session demonstrates that they continued standing because their sacrifices never achieved the goal of true atonement. In verse 11 of our passage, the pastor writes, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly 
the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The old covenant priests can never sit because their job was never done, the pastor reasons. Their repetitious, inadequate sacrifices demonstrate the inadequacy of the old covenant priesthood as a whole. Their sacrifices were completely unable to take away sins. This, of course, is not a new concept for us. Last week, we considered chapter 10, verse 1, where the pastor wrote, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, the pastor concluded in verse 4. But not so for the blood of Christ. Rather than repeated sacrifices that could never take away sins, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, verse 12 of our text declares. This too has been the theme of several recent passages in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 26 put it as clearly as any. He has appeared once for all, the pastor writes, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 9, verse 28 says, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. But now, now for the first time, the pastor connects these great truths explicitly to Christ's session. Since the old sacrifices were offered perpetually, it was obvious that every priest stands daily. What has been implicit from chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews on is now made explicit. By having offered once the sacrifice for sins, Christ, our great high priest, no longer needs to stand. His sacrifice is finished, and so he sits down. In fact, the Father invited him to do so. From the beginning, it has been clear that this session of Christ is where the pastor would direct our focus not only for our theological understanding, but for our own hearts. Only now do we clearly see the reason. It is because Christ's session is itself the result of his sacrifice. To look to Jesus, seated now at the right hand of the Father, is to look upon the one who offered himself to bring about the purposes of his Father. The session of Christ cannot be separated from the sacrifice of Christ. The eternal priest of Psalm 110 verse 4 now sits forever in accordance with Psalm 110 verse 1. One commentator goes so far as to say that the whole purpose of the pastor writing Hebrews 
The whole purpose of the pastor writing Hebrews has been to explain God's invitation to sit at his right hand from verse 1 of Psalm 110 in light of God's declaration of perpetual priesthood in verse 4. As a result of his offering, Christ sat down as high priest forever. It was because of the offering Christ made that the Father would extend to him the divine invitation to sit at his right hand to his own Son, who was willing to partake of the same flesh and blood as the children God has given him in order to deliver us, to save us, to bring us to glory, to go, in fact, where he has gone. This has been the grand narrative of Hebrews, has it not? If we, you and I, were to ever arrive at the goal of the promise delivered to Abraham, the promise of entrance into the holy presence of God in his resting place, we were in need of cleansing, sanctification, forgiveness. It was the Son who would work this cleansing. The Son, who was willing to come as one of us to carry out his Father's will. The Son, who would bring about this great salvation simultaneously as priest and offering. This had always been the heart of God. Last week, we considered how Jesus spoke the words of Psalm 40 on the eve of his incarnation. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He did, perfectly and completely. And by that will, verse 10 from our passage last week concluded, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, our sins having been taken away by the blood of Christ, our consciences having been cleansed, we are now those who have been sanctified, those who have been made perfect and thus able to draw near to God himself. Having now linked the sacrifice of Christ to his session in our passage, the pastor makes that same point once more in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Because Christ's single sacrifice for sins achieved the forgiveness that animal deaths could never provide, his single offering results in our perfection. Previously defiled by our sin, we are now and forever in the realm of the holy, those who are sanctified by Christ's atoning blood, pure and spotless in the presence of God, it is finished, and as a result, ours is the new covenant life to live. For as we saw last week in verse 9 of chapter 10, 
he does away with the first in order to establish the second. It is that second new covenant that's explicitly then in view as we conclude our passage this morning. If the end of the reading this morning that Nathan, when Nathan read it in verses 15 to 18 sounded somewhat familiar to you, that's because it is. The pastor there here in our text references the same Jeremiah 31 passage that he had quoted at great length in Hebrews chapter 8. He references here in this climactic moment the promise of the new covenant. The pastor now concludes his main exposition by re-examining that promise in light of its fulfillment. He's shown how Christ's high priestly work has made the provisions of Jeremiah's promise a present reality. The issuing of the promise in Jeremiah's own time indicated the imminent demise of the Mosaic system. But that same promise now fulfilled is the ultimate attestation to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice and session. All that can be done has been done, and it's as God had planned all along. The pastor introduces the quote from Jeremiah by explaining that the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. In the words of the Spirit-inspired prophet, the same Spirit now speaks to us, helping us to see the significance of what the Son has done. Jesus has brought about the new covenant reality that has always been the hope of the people of God. I will put my laws on their hearts, the Lord declared, and write them on their minds. What had to happen for that promise to be realized has now happened. Verse 17 says, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The pastor would have us understand how the Jeremiah passage attests to the full sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. As prophesied in Jeremiah, His is the sacrifice that brings about the complete removal of sin. As such, all other offerings are excluded. Christ was completely successful. His obedience has produced a covenant in which he, he now the exalted son, high priest in the heavenly places, he has written his laws on his people's hearts so that they too can live in obedience. We know from Ezekiel, other texts in the New Testament, he does it by the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. Or as the pastor put it in chapter 9, verse 14, it is the blood of Christ that has purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. God through Christ has done away with sin. 
with the result that all the other promises of the new covenant are made actual, though not quoted here in Hebrews 10. The words God spoke in Jeremiah 31 verse 33 for the house of Israel are now for all those who persevere in faith and I will be their God and they shall be my people, the Lord declares. Now and for all eternity. Earlier in this sermon, I said that from the beginning of Hebrews, it has been the pastor's goal and remains his goal to fix his hearer's gaze on the session of the Son as Jesus, our great high priest, who came into the world to do his Father's will by becoming the once for all sacrifice for sins. Christ's Seated posture at God's right hand confirms that his one sacrifice forgives sin, cleanses the conscience, and grants access to the presence of God. As the pastor said at the beginning of this central section of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because the goal of all of this has not changed. We must continue in faith. We must run the race, but we do so looking to this Jesus, the one who having endured the cross has sat down in the place of ultimate authority with all the resources needed to enable his new covenant people to persevere in faithful obedience. In closing, as we reflect on all that the pastor has taught and now here summarized for us this morning, if I've been successful at all in drawing this together, In closing, let me quote from another author whose words I found helpful this week, who in speaking of Hebrews 10 verses 11 to 18 writes this. What do these verses tell us? But that in Christ, we have not mere religion, but salvation. We do not have ritual and tradition alone, but spiritual reality and power. We have no warm sentiments, not moral self-help, but the forgiveness of our sins by the work of the Savior and power for holiness from a heavenly Lord the sacrifice and the session. The author continues, Jesus Christ has done upon the cross what no priest of Israel could ever have done and what no worldly religion can ever achieve today. For both the Hebrew Christian in danger of abandoning Christ and today's fence-sitting doubter in danger of passing by the one and true salvation, these verses sound a clanging gospel bell. There are a true sacrifice for our forgiveness, 
and a priest reigning in heaven to make us into what we were created to be. If we hear and believe, we gain the right to sing the gospel hymn with joy. And here this author quotes from a famous hymn by Wesley, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.